for Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with activist and artist Jacob Tobiah about their debut memoir, Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. Find out how Tucson Modernism Week is celebrating the legacy of world-renowned architect Judith Chafee. And film essayist Chris DeShiel examines three films that illuminate real-life aspects of the immigration experience. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. One or zero, yes or no, boy or girl. Binary is a language that might work well for computers, but human beings are more complex. Jacob Tobias' first book is all about growing up, trying to find identity in the gender-defying space that's in between. Sissy, a coming-of-gender story, covers Tobias' personal experience from preschool to college and their emergence as a gender-nonconforming activist and creative artist who has proudly worn high heels to the White House twice to stand up for LGBTQ plus rights. Tobiah will be in Tucson next week as a guest of the Pima County Public Library. It's funny to me just how fundamental knowledge of whether someone is a boy or a girl is. And I think there is no greater illustration of just how kind of dependent we are on that information than when people meet your pet. Right. Like when someone comes up to you and meets your dog, 90 percent of the time, the first question is, oh, is it a boy or a girl? Yeah. And it's like it's a dog. They don't have the same gender understanding that we do. And they certainly don't care which pronouns you use in English because they don't speak English. You know, like (laughs) like what bearing does that have on the interaction that you're going to have? You know, and I feel like when I point that out to people about, ironically enough, about dogs and then being like, oh, I guess I could just say hello to a dog and ask it, ask its name and then just be as enthusiastic as I'd like to be about this beautiful, incredible golden retriever in front of me, you know. And then I'm like, well, can't you extend that same courtesy to a person, right? Like, isn't it possible for us to meet one another and be like, I don't fully understand the, the story of your gender. Um, and that's OK, because we're just meeting, you know, and I'm going to be respectful to you and kind to you and treat you with decency because that's how I treat people. While reading your book, I felt like every chapter really in a lot of ways brought me closer to you because it was focused on your experience, not the oppressive role of gender in our culture. It was mm-hmm. you navigating through those spaces. Don't we all want to live the life we want to live? I mean, I know right. I know someone who's trans, and when I first met them, Uh, I didn't question it. I didn't wander about it or have any questions. But as I got to know them better, I realized that this was one of the happiest people that I'm lucky to know. Because there's someone who's made concrete choices in their own favor. They made the choices that made them happy. And today they are who they want to be. And when people talk about, you know, the, say, issues with blending trans or queer culture with cisgender culture or heteronorms, it seems like it's missing the point that we should all be so lucky as to know someone who has managed to become 
a happy person. And, right. and you radiate that. Well, I just feel so honored by your words and, and by the fact that, that reading the book, that you feel closer to me and to this story. I mean, that's every author's dream, right, is to hear that. Um, but I also feel like, you know, it's, it was something that was very intentional when I was crafting the book. There's this pressure sometimes when you come from any kind of marginal community that you have to write something that's, that's somehow universal or, or representative, right? There's this representative pressure that I have to write a book that somehow sums up the entirety of the non-binary experience or the trans experience via my personal story, right? There's that sort of pressure that you have to help people understand the entirety of the thing through your own lens. But you can never do that. No one person's story can access the entire story of a community. It's only ever a sampling of that. And so for me, I, I really I took a, you know, a really hard turn into making sure that I, I gave myself permission to be like, this is just my experience and is a very personal story that has greater social implications, but is first and foremost about letting people in to, to sort of my world and, and the world as I've experienced it. But something else you said really resonated with me, and I, because I think it's, it's a message that we don't hear very often about trans people and about the trans and non-binary community. There's this sort of stereotype that trans people are all you know, very traumatized, hurt people who are meek and have been brought down by the world. But I've found very much the opposite to be true. Being trans and being of trans experience what it does is it it kind of compels you, it forces you to contend with your gender-based trauma, you know, with the way that gender has helped you and empowered you, but also with the ways that gender has hurt you. And if there's one lesson that I think the trans community has to teach the entire world, it's how to heal from gender-based trauma and how to understand and claim the fullness of yourself outside of the prescriptive boundaries that were given. Right. Like no child should have to give up their hobbies because they aren't coded correctly under the gender that they're understood to be. You shouldn't have to learn to speak differently. So your voice sounds more masculine. You shouldn't have to learn to, you know, to walk more daintily so that you appear more feminine when you need to. Right. You should just be able to express yourself how how you feel best. Um, and I think the reality of our world is that uh, the gender binary and the idea that there are only two genders and that they have, you know, these traditions of masculinity and femininity attached and that you must uh, conform to that, it makes it really hard to be in touch with who you really are. So there's something about transition and there's something about claiming trans experience that helps you kind of transcend all of that. One of the funny parts in your book, and there are many, is when you talk about camping as being kind of a de-genderfying experience. When people are camping in a group, it's an equal playing field, uh, gender not invited. Yeah. I mean, the thing I love about camping, especially if you're backpacking, is that um, you don't even have to worry about finding a gender-neutral restroom um, <laughs> because an entire mountain range becomes your gender-neutral restroom, and you never have to worry about having your gender police. Uh, while you're using the facilities, because there are none. You just have to worry about bears. And I think that's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, nature can be a great equalizer in that way. And I feel I feel really at home in my body when I'm in nature, because it reminds me that there is nothing unnatural about being a gender expansive person. 
you know, that, that I am made exactly the way I'm supposed to be and that gender nonconforming people have existed as long as gender has existed. We're part and parcel of the fabric of, of the natural world. Um, and and I, I feel really grounded by that knowledge. And for people who say that because of the strides that's been made in representation recently, that you guys have it easy now, you know, why is the trans community still up in arms over being mistreated? Aren't they satisfied with the progress they've made? What would your reply be? Um, well, I think it's very possible to be grateful for the progress you've made um, and acknowledge that there's still quite a bit more to go. Like, it's possible to say, yes, I have run three miles, and I'm really happy about that. Um, But this isn't a 5K. It's a marathon. It's not good strategically to think that you're almost done when you're not. Um, And, and, you know, on a a more kind of human level, uh, if people want to say, oh, you have all this visibility, like, you're good now. It's like I don't ever want people to mistake visibility for the ultimate goal, right? The ultimate goal is to live in a world where the lived experiences of gender nonconforming and trans people are no different than the lived experiences of anyone else, right? The, the goal is to live in a world free from discrimination, free from violence, and where everyone has access to gender self-determination. Visibility and having some trans people on TV is only a step towards that goal. It's a tool towards what we actually need to accomplish on a grand societal and structural level. We're not even remotely close to done. We're just getting started. For anyone who says that that's not true um, and that, you know, we should be grateful for what we have and there are no problems, that trans people are making it up, um, I would just say all you have to do is, if you're male-bodied, put on a dress and lipstick uh, and walk into a men's bathroom at an airport, you know, and just see how you feel. See if it feels like no big deal anymore then. Um, because that's, you know, and talk about another place where I'm still struggling. I travel so much for work and airports are awful. There's very rarely access to gender-neutral restrooms. Airports are already miserable enough, just as a human, um, that, like, you know, when you add sort of trying to, like, pee in safety to that equation, it's really tough. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I would just say that, that visibility is only the beginning of the movement. It is a tool to help build people's consciousness so that we can start shifting policies, so that we can start redesigning and reimagining gender um, in our public consciousness. And we've made incredible strides, but we're not done. And that's exciting. It means there's more work to do. And I'm a workaholic, so I'm happy about that. I spoke with Jacob Tobiah about their book, Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. Jacob is the featured speaker at the Pima County Public Library's 21st Annual LGBTQ Plus Author Series. That's Wednesday, October 16th at 6 p.m. at the Murphy Wilmot Branch Library. Architect Judith Chafee was known internationally for her bold and striking designs that exemplified many qualities of modernism. She grew up in Arizona, then spent 22 years getting an education at Bennington and Yale and finding her place at the center of the architectural world. Her unconventional decision to return to the Sonoran Desert in 1970 is one of the topics covered in the book Powerhouse, The Life and Work of Judith Chafee. Andrew Brown spoke to the book's authors, Christopher Doman and Catherine McGuire, in advance of their appearance this weekend 
as part of Tucson Modernism Week. It seems in my experience with Judith that she has just this way of like drawing people in into her life and into her work. Christopher, how did you first become introduced to her and, and what was the, um, I guess, attraction there that kept you so dedicated that you ended up writing a book about it? I was a student in architecture, an undergraduate student, uh, reading my History of Architecture textbook by William Curtis. And I read ahead to a chapter that had a picture of a house in the Sonoran Desert by Judith Chafee. And it just stuck with me. And it's been 25 years trying to get here to work on this project. Um, So it's been in the back of my mind for quite a while. When you look at the work, she has this modernist trajectory in her, her background. But she also, I think, came back to Tucson because she cared about this place. She cared about the climate. She cared about the natural lighting. And it's really fascinating to how she developed those ideas together into, at the end of her life, talking about sustainability. And so she began to put all those sort of pieces together in that early sort of question about what is sustainability and how do we make architecture a sustainable practice. She was in the forefront of that. Can you describe the look and feel of her buildings? I mean, when I've been to quite a few at this point, and they're all so distinctive, but they're all so very chafy when I'm when I'm experiencing them. One thing that most of her clients would say was that Judith listened to them. So every project she did represented the client's desires, needs, but then it was incorporated with her knowledge of what's really important, understanding, or I should say translating, what she's hearing from the client, and then how do we make this be a viable modern house for them. You know, modernism is not a style. It's really an ethic. It's a, it's a, a philosophy of how you do things. You know, I think in, in her mind, sustainable design started with good practice. So one of the first things you do is you understand the site and you find a way to place the building meaningfully on the site. Thinking about the procession from the road, into the courtyard, into the front door, into the main space of the house. But then it's also thinking about how and where you bring in light and how you keep the sun off of the glass so you don't overheat the interior of the house. And I think most importantly, in an area where you're trying to minimize air conditioning or even in pre-air air conditioning periods, you make sure to understand natural ventilation. How do you open up the house to allow breezes in the morning to move through, then come back in the evening, and you readjust the house in order to tune it to that time of day? Just hearing you talk about that, it's relaxing to me. <laughs> and maybe it gives me the feeling of being in one of her houses. It's all, all, that, that, all that stuff has been thought of for you so you don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I knew Judith first as a student, and at the time I, I, I was aware of her work and felt I'd won the lottery because I got her as my professor. And this was back in, in the late 70s. And then was fortunate enough to get to work in her office when I graduated. And I stayed in her office and was with her until she died. She could be very abrasive. She could be tough on herself more than anyone else. She, you know, she came through a world where women immediately had a hand put up to, to stop. You know, you can't go any farther. And from the time she, she just never had that when she was growing up in Tucson as a kid. She could go anywhere and do anything. Even getting into Yale, there were very few women getting in at the time. She was the only woman in her class who graduated. She did not hold back 
Um, and she w had a very free use of the English language to, for people. That would be sometimes offensive, but she got her point across. What by ever do you mean by free use of the English language? <laughs> uh, there, were, there were no words off the, that were off the list. <laughs> and, and if she was taking a contractor to terms because the work was shoddy, she made no she made it very clear the title of the book is powerhouse there is the fact that she mo she almost exclusively did residential um, buildings and i can't help but think every time i think about chafee what a loss it is to all of us that she never had any major public works i don't think she imagined that her life's work would be houses i think she from the from early on in her studies she had ideas ideas about urbanism about prefabrication about large-scale material movements and so i think the idea of doing larger public buildings as part of her practice was important to her um, the work comes as is um, necessary uh, in the economy that you exist within and a lot of the the economic development in tucson surrounded residential development there was also development of public buildings in Tucson throughout the 1960s and 70s as she was starting her practice here. And she was not part of the group that was often considered for that work, even though she probably had the most distinguished education of uh, anybody in the city, uh, among others. Um, so it is surprising that she didn't get some of those projects. And there's different theories about why she didn't. Um, she was um, tough on people. And also, I think maybe being a woman architect didn't help her as people were trying to figure out how to um, have the next public building built in the city. She might not have looked like the architect they imagined. I find it gratifying to be able to get Judith's story out into the world more. And it would have been great to get it even sooner, but it takes time to put these, these books together. But we have such wonderful representation now. For, for anyone to see what she's done. Andrew Brown spoke with Catherine McGuire and Christopher Doman, co-authors of Powerhouse, The Life and Work of Judith Chafee. They have a presentation at 1.30 this Saturday afternoon at the American Evangelical Church on North Tucson Boulevard, part of the Tucson Historic Preservation Foundation's Modernism Week. There's also a self-guided home tour that includes a rare chance to visit two of Judith Chafee's designs on Sunday. More information is at PreserveTucson.org, and you can watch a documentary about Judith Chafee at azpm.org. Chris DeShiel joins us next for a look at three recent films that, for him, turned headlines about immigration across our southern border into memorable stories. Chris DeShiel is an independent contributor to the show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. As the immigration issue seems to have been dominated by the most inflammatory and ill-informed among us, I think it's worth our while to examine the perspectives of some recent movies on the subject. Three films a drama and two documentaries, present three aspects of the immigration controversy. We are embarking on a 1,200-mile journey from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico. 
to try and understand where exactly a wall would go and what effects it would have. I think there's people over on that bank. I talked to my parents about it. They said that was them 30 years ago. Any conversation on immigration has to begin with operational control of our border. The River and the Wall, directed by Ben Masters, was released in May of 2019. Masters is an author and conservationist from Texas. As the American president repeatedly promised to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, Masters decided to film a journey along the Rio Grande, which forms about 1,200 miles of that border, from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico. Along with his film crew, he invited four experts to come along. Fellow Texan conservationist Jay Kleberg, ornithologist Heather McKay, National Geographic TV host Philippe D'Andrade, and river guide Austin Alvarado. Alvarado's parents were Guatemalan refugees who came to this country illegally. He reflects on the courage and determination that took for them to get here, how that has inspired him, and the love for the river that resulted in him deciding to be a river guide. The film documents the group's journey to the Gulf over two and a half months. They travel by mountain bike, on foot, on horseback, and eventually in canoes. We are shown an absolutely gorgeous country, much of it wilderness, teeming with wildlife. D'Andrade and McKay argue that a wall would badly disrupt the migration of animals and threaten their habitats. Along the way, the travelers meet ranchers and other landowners whose property is in danger of being taken away by the government under eminent domain in order to build the wall. A wall would also effectively cede hundreds of thousands of acres to Mexico, creating a no-man's land in between, besides wreaking havoc on local economies. We also hear from a Texas Republican congressman, Will Hurd, who carefully explains that there are far more effective means for border enforcement than a wall, which would essentially be an expensive boondoggle, liable to failure in many ways. After this long journey, and having seen the beauty and wonders of the river and its lands, the viewer is forced to question the sanity of the wall as a solution to anything. File number 26449, Oscar Fernandez. Answer the question. But yes or no, Solo please. Is it true that you Oscar were born in Honduras? Why did you choose to enter the United States? Illegally? They told me that I had to join the gang or they would kill me. And did you join the gang? Icebox is a 2018 drama from HBO, written and directed by Daniel Saka. It follows a Honduran boy named Oscar, played by Anthony Gonzalez, who has been targeted by violent drug gangs that forced him to the ground and burned a gang tattoo onto his chest. Now he must join them or else. His family helps him to escape through a smuggler with the goal of reaching an uncle in Phoenix. The long journey to Mexico is perilous, and then the smuggler betrays his customers once they've crossed the border by giving them defective bicycles, then claiming they need to work for him for a while so that he can afford better ones. Oscar runs away instead and is eventually found exhausted in the desert by the border patrol. He gets thrown into an immigrant detention center in a building that is kept at ice-cold temperatures, thus the title, Icebox, with only an aluminum foil blanket to sleep under. The conditions for kids in these camps have become well-known due to the scandal of family separation under the Trump administration. In addition to the crowding and lack of sanitation, the authorities fail to give Oscar clear instructions on how to request asylum. It's the obvious intention of his jailers to send him back to Honduras. 
And on top of everything else, the other young inmates see his tattoo, and he becomes a hated pariah because they think he's an active, willing gang member. The director allows his child actors to be themselves, so the performances are natural, helping to create a film of moving realism. Icebox is a vivid portrait of the exhausting and terrifying ordeal of an undocumented immigrant child. These people, as much as they are invisible in life, they're invisible in death. It's very hard to identify them. Nobody's out there searching for them. The immigration controversy didn't start with Trump. A remarkable documentary from 2013 focuses on the people who don't make it, migrants who die while trying to cross the desert. Directed by Mark Silver, it's called Who is Dayani Cristal? In 2010, the dead body of a man was found in the Sonoran Desert, not too far from Tucson. It was among over 200 bodies found that year. There was no ID, but on the dead man was a tattoo with the words Dayani Cristal. From this starting point, the film seeks to find out who this man was and in the process illuminate the plight of migrants, as well as the border policies that contribute to their deaths. We meet workers at the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner in Tucson. While they talk about their methods and tracing missing persons, we also hear frank opinions about the government's immigration policies. It was only after the Clinton and Bush administration sealed off the more urban routes of entry that the deaths in the desert skyrocketed. In the meantime, the popular Mexican actor Gael Garcia Bernal goes on his own journey, reenacting the typical route of a migrant from Central America, including traveling clandestinely on top of a train, which, despite being dangerous, is a common method of going north. These sequences dovetail with the discovery, after a lengthy and involved process, of the mystery man's identity, a Honduran named Johan Sandras Martinez. We see interviews with his wife and family, and it turns out he left for America in order to help with his family's medical bills. One of his kids had leukemia. Even those of us who are sympathetic to the plight of undocumented immigrants still generally think of them in the abstract. Here, we are confronted with a real person who died seeking a better life for his family. And the reality of the situation becomes immediate and vital. When the question, who is Dayani Cristal, was finally answered in the film, I couldn't stop crying. At one point, Johan's brother says that he's heard that billions of dollars are being spent on fences and walls, inert objects. Why can't they invest in human beings instead, he asks. This is the great question confronting us with the immigration issue. The River and the Wall, Icebox, and Who is Dayani Cristal are all available on DVD and streaming. They each help bring light in a time of social and political darkness. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.